0: This is Rachel Zucker, and this is Episode 8 of Commonplace, Conversations with Poets and Other People. I interviewed Craig Morgan Teicher, poet, critic, reviewer, tastemaker, professor, on a very hot day last June when he was able to steal away from his many other commitments to spend a little time talking with me about his amazing life, a life so full of writing poetry, reading poetry, and writing poetry. Craig writes what he calls sad books and chapbooks. His books are Brenda is in the Room, Ambivalence, Cradle Book, To Keep Love Blurry, and his forthcoming, The Trembling Answers, from which he reads during this episode. Craig teaches poetry at NYU and the New School. He works at Publishers Weekly. He is also poetry editor at the Literary Review, but there is more and more and more. He writes reviews, interviews poets, and often serves as a judge for important literary prizes. In this episode, Craig and I talk about the business of poetry, or pobiz, as many poets call it. And talking to Craig helped me see pobiz, something I usually resent and try to separate from my reading and writing life, in a new light – For Craig, writing reviews, blurbs, essays, articles, or for example, his recent project of editing a collection of prose and poetry by Delmore Schwartz, a largely forgotten and according to Craig, underestimated writer, all these ways of writing and reading and being involved in publishing, even the business of marketing poetry, these for Craig are all part of the real work, all ways of looking for privacy in a public place which is part of what Craig loves about poetry. Craig and I also talk about our own work, each other's work, about regret, sadness, parenthood, cruelty, monstrousness, voyeurism, confession, and realness. I asked Craig for his prediction of which living writer will be thought of as great long after we are both gone. And he has the courage to answer me. I've learned so much over the years from talking to Craig about poetry, his poetry, my poetry, other people's. He's been a kind and generous reader of my poems and always recommends fabulous new and old poets for me to read. Both of us are inspired by the New York School of Poetry, although in temperament and tone, we probably more closely resemble the confessional poets. I feel a deep sense of community with Craig as we write and parent and teach and work and struggle with our inner Robert Lowells and Anne Sexton's. For the past few years, Craig has worked hard to help me develop a fondness for Robert Lowell, and it's almost working. During our commonplace conversation, I mention that Craig asked me to write a blurb for his forthcoming book, The Trembling Answers. Well, I confess now that I never came through for him, even though I loved reading the manuscript. I'm no good at blurb writing and find writing reviews and most kinds of critical writing excruciating. What I love is writing and reading and listening to and looking at all kinds of art. I hope this episode will serve as a kind of extended form, raggedy, unpublished blorb, a term I'm making up right now for a long, collaborative, exploratory, contradictory, uncertain, messy rush of language. Something that contains a full range of emotion, something that would never fit on the back of a book, but that makes you want to read the person's work. At the end of this episode, after the credits and the music, there's a bonus for all of you who want to keep listening. Craig will read two poems, one by Merrill Moore and one by Robert Lowell, and I'll read two short excerpts from Tape for the Turn of the Year, a book-length poem that Craig and I both adore by A.R. Ammons. These audio files will also be available along with other great links and resources on the Commonplace website, which is www.commonpodcast.com. If you like what you hear, please write us a review on iTunes. It really helps us. And as always, thanks so much for listening. than anyone I can think of. So you work for Publishers Weekly, you teach, you obviously write, You uh, even your domestic life has to do with poetry, hopefully we can talk about this more specifically, but you're married to the poet Brenda Shaughnessy, you've judged contests, you've done, I'm forgetting stuff. Tell me right now all the different (laughs) kinds of poetry Um, things you
1: do. I'm a poetry editor of the Literary Review. I have been on the board of the National Book Critics Circle and judge the National Book Award. I write a hell of a lot of criticism. Um and that is most of it. And and yeah.
0: Right. So a few things about okay. Well, first of all, why do you do those things?
1: I don't know. It it's some some It's it's something not unlike treading water sometimes, (laughs) I think. And it's something not unlike, um, you know, a kind of a small sort of a power grab or just some, some sense of wanting to feel like my foot is making a print. But also, you know, I think it turns out that if you're the kind of person who really... Likes to have a thing, you know, a thing you're obsessed with, and a thing that you do and that you shape your life around. Which I am. Then poetry is a good one because it presents a full lifestyle's worth of ways to um, participate. I think. I mean, I I think I've I've never really understood poets who don't do other parts of it. Or anyway, it just doesn't seem fun enough to me. You know, it would be like collecting. I mean, you know playing music is very much a part of my collecting of music, you know, and I just wouldn't understand. I mean, and I'm a collector of music more than I am a musician, whereas I'm a writer of poetry more than I am a collector of poetry things. But I I don't understand kind of reading and writing as separate and all these activities are are versions of reading or writing, you know?
0: So when I was talking about this poetry podcast um, with a friend of mine uh, who is not a poet. Um, she's just started a business, a very delicious business of tahini and halva. Um, it's called Seed and Mill. It's I
1: can't believe good. you have friends who aren't poets. I haven't, well, I I haven't met any in decades.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right, so this is actually where the question is going. And she asked me all these kind of very business-minded questions about why are you doing the podcast, and it's too long, um, who are you trying to reach... And, um, what's your budget? She asked me, what's your budget for the podcast? I said, budget.
1: How much was that water?
0: <laughs> right, I got that for free from Soren. So <laughs> <It's free. laughs> yeah, um, she's a good friend. And so we had a good argument and I got really infuriated and I just said to her, look, you, you know, you're not an artist. You don't understand the arts economy works differently than the economy economy. And at the same, so there, but there is an arts economy. There is even a poetry economy, which I'd like to talk about. I'd also like to say that for people who are not poets, who astonishingly some of them are listening to this podcast, which is kind of fantastic, I know, right? Um, <laughs> poets, many poets that I know, complain about the poetry biz, the po biz, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so can you talk, say what the po biz is, and can we talk for a minute about the relationship between PoBiz and the poetry economy, are those the same thing? They're not.
1: Well, I don't know. They're certainly related. And I guess, I mean, it's like on the one hand, I know exactly why this is the first subject that we're dealing with, 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 with me, because I'm so much a, a part of, or so much of what I do is involved with all of that. And yet, I don't know, at its best, PoBiz seems very beautiful and poetic to mm-hmm. me. Or, or anyway, it seems like just a part of what gets the books to me, which is what I want. Mm-hmm. So, I can read them alone i don 't know. I mean, what is Pope it's the infrastructure of um, nonprofit organizations, universities, um, contests, you know nonprofits, which I think I said twice, but that's probably appropriate <laughs> um, you know that that foster the publication and propagation of poetry and the um, and the education of poets in especially the United States. Hmm and it's an it's uh and it's mostly staffed by poets and it makes people very bitter and crazy and you have to be careful of it mhm but
0: you had just used the word fun to describe the work that you do you know other than writing
1: yeah i mean you know my my daughter has reached the point of being like, why do you get so many books in the mail? (laughs) Um, You know, which Brenda reached, you know, almost instantly a long time ago, you know, but there's nothing I love more than, than being part of the process of publicizing and just sort of the, the behind the scenes process that gets books made. I mean, I I love it. And I love getting mailed galleys and I love opening up an envelope and not knowing what's going to be in it. And then getting this like, peek into some depth of inner life that comes via, you know, or, or, I mean, that comes with marketing copy wrapped Mm -hmm. around it. I mean, that's just so interesting to me that those two things live together because, you know, except in a very few situations, the marketing of poetry is a sort of a silly idea. You know, what, what's happened with Ocean Vong's book, which, which has a lot to do with, with Kelly Forsyth, who's the, who's, I mean, with Ocean's wonderful poetry and then with Kelly's um, amazing ability as a publicist that's a real anomaly where, where something kind of actually economic, you know, where something big happens, but mostly it's just the, you know, these kinds of concentric labors of love where Mm -hmm. a poet writes something and sends it to a publisher who makes it into a beautiful book, you know, the cost of which is not subsidized by its sales and the, or I mean, maybe it is subsidized by its sales in the best cases. Anyway, all of that seems beautiful to me. And then the sort of fierceness of some of the poetry publicists that I have worked with over the years and you know, their, their sense of organization and usage of spreadsheets. I mean, all of that in the service of, again, something that I think of as about the most private thing mm. that I know, which is, which is reading, you know, where, where there's just the kind of hazy space between my head and, and words Um, where, you know, where no publicity can, can enter. Mm -hmm. But I, but I love that it's wrapped in these layers of things. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, I mean, it's, you know, it's about, it's about fetishizing, right? It's about fetishizing Mm -hmm. the whole process, you know, like what, what printer did they use or how high quality are the galleys? And do they use thumbnail photos on the front or, Mm -hmm. you know, full size art and is it pixelated? And then like, you know, do all the publicity sheets look the same? I mean, I I love these things. Mm -hmm. And, I feel so grateful. I mean, I would have loved it as much if, if I had done it in music, if I was a record reviewer, but that was never going to happen. But I, I, I love that there's... I mean, I, I, I always loved that. As a kid, I read video game magazines, or I read, you know, my G.I. Joe figures. The vehicles came with these little manuals. I, I called them manuals. They were just brochures to tell you to buy more vehicles. But I would pore over them and, like, read every, mm-hmm. you know, thing that they came with. I mean, I, I love that I found a lifestyle where that... Is my sometimes my job or or some part of my professional life? For you know for for which I mean Which is legitimate or legitimizing? Um, Because really for me, I'm just you know I just gave you that that Norton book and I love that they always use that paper stock that says like book news Because it's Mm -hmm. not book news. It's a it's a publicity (laughs) sheet and they say the silliest things on it Um, but I love it
0: and so your involvement in all of this infrastructure, like the, the production of the books or the, the publicity, when some people would say that, you know, publicity is not really an accurate word for poetry. Do you feel like it's more about being part of helping a book come into the world that might not get into the world? Is it more about getting a book that's already... Like, what gives you the most pleasure? Is it about, is it about getting a book to the person who wants it, Um, because poetry is not in bookstores it's not you have to you have to know what you're looking for and it's it is almost like it has a market but it's almost like a secret market like a black market
1: yeah no it's a it's a it's a kind of bizarre called awp yeah i don't know you know it's it's weird because as the longer i've been working as a book critic blessedly the the more you know the more high profile my my writing gigs have been and so now, when I'm writing for a big newspaper, you know, I'm writing about Rita Dove or somebody who doesn't need my help at all, mm-hmm. but but or or who maybe, you know, for whom maybe the the, the review is is useful. Mm-hmm. You know, Rita Dove, I think, was very happy about the review I, I did of her. I think Norton was happy about it, but it's it's hardly advocacy mm-hmm. in in a way. I mean, I, I like to think that there are a few things that I do that are a little more behind the scenes, like poetry editing for the literary review, and occasionally you know, trying to match up a poet and somebody who might want to publish them, um, you know, either in a magazine or, or more than that, just, you know, that that there are ways that I can help connect um, people and, and, and publishing. And, you know, all of that is, of course, intrinsically satisfying. There's also some element of, like, I, power's not the right word, but, I mean, just since we're, you know, being honest, I mean, mm-hmm. just some element of, like, It feels exciting to be somebody that can connect those dots. And, you know, Richard Howard was an important mentor for me and and also remains an important friend. And um, he was, for decades, uh, a person who put poets in touch with publishing. And I find it really fascinating for all the reasons. I mean, just this idea that he could make a phone call at one point and that would result in, um, you know, you having a book. Um, I mean, and, you know, he the whole generation of poets that's now in their 80s. I mean, Bedard, Simic, J.D. McClatchy, who's a little younger, Cynthia McDonald, I mean, Carl Dennis, also a little younger, I think. He published all of their first books. Mm-hmm. And I don't I just, when I saw that as like a 24-year-old, I was just like, whoa, that's fascinating. Mm-hmm.
0: So, so fascinating is an interesting word because I would say some people would say, wow, that's really exciting, it's really personal and intimate um and also there is power in that right to be a person who can mm-hmm. you know help a, a book come into the world help a poet have an audience at the same time other people would say wow that's like the most nepotistic obnoxious yeah yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. i mean and it's a it's a it's a i don't know i mean and, and and yeah maybe that's part of why the word is fascinating you know because it's it's not um and, and it, it, it was not always clean by any means mm-hmm. um, you know and and that's certainly something that that as a community we've like come to really strive for is like much clearer and like much more transparency around around how publishing happens but still just like as an as a nerd it's fascinating mm-hmm. right that, that just these connections can get made. I don't think I'd ever want to be the in the position that Richard was in which was just you know, you, you put the book sort of between covers and it's there magically. I mean, so many of the editors that I know now do such rigorous things to bring books into the world mm-hmm. um, that, I mean, again, that's something that I also admire a great deal. I mean, I don't do that, you mm-hmm. know. I don't I don't curate, really. Mm-hmm. I comment upon. Um,
0: yeah, do you think, how do you think that the prop the publishing process today is uh more transparent than it used to be Or do you think it's more equitable do you think it's less equitable
1: i think it's it's um a good deal more transparent and i think it's more equitable i mean again it's like all of these people are on facebook you know if you want to if you want to talk to michael Wiegers at copper canyon you can just talk to him on facebook you you know Jeff Schatz is on Facebook I mean all these people will you can reach them if you have a question about what they're doing and um, they're they're under the public eye in a way that makes them I think a lot more responsible it it was you know the same old man's club mm-hmm. for forever it was just a different bunch of old men who did the poetry part of it then did the other you know parts of it but it's it's different from that now mm-hmm. um, there are also a lot more poets, there are a lot more opportunities, but, but there are a lot more poets. I mean, I, I think obviously the contest system has been forced to be a lot more equitable and transparent, um, which is good.
0: Mm-hmm. I two questions. I don't know which one you want to answer first, but you know, you said in the beginning that being involved in the infrastructure is is part of making having your foot make a print or Mm -hmm. power grab and again like coming back to to the non-poet asking me you know my whole life hope you say you're a poet and people just like take a step away um (laughs) you know or they ask a bunch of questions so you know as poets do we do our feet make prints do do is there any power to grab or are you talking about you know, well, you know, I chose a very small world and this, you know, I'm, I'm pretty much as involved in this small world as a person can be and still sleep at night, um, you know, and occasionally do something non-poetry related. And so, I don't know, it's a very small world in certain ways.
1: I don't know, when I came out of college, I was basically choosing between two things. I was like, should I try to be a professional comedian or should I try to be a poet? Mm. Um, and this was at the dawn of the UCB scene here in New York, UCB scene, here in New York, um, you know, which has, in, in the last decade and a half, like, minted a generation and a half of, of really successful comedians. And
0: What UCB stands for? Um,
1: Upright Citizens Brigade is the thing that Amy Poehler and three other... Uh, improvisers founded um anyway i you know i I had done improv all through college and then came out and started taking improv classes in new york and realized very quickly that i did not have the self-confidence the kind of the 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 kind of risk-taking behavior and the the will to kind of embed myself in a social scene for the sake of my ambition Mm -hmm. um that it would have required to become a professional comic in that environment, or so it seemed to me, I mean or or I was at some level too i don't know if shy is the right word, but just just too scared yeah. for it and, and you know meanwhile I you know poetry was always there and and then you know I was also applying to grad school and and it it became apparent within the next couple of years during grad school that I did have the temperament to like do the kinds of risk taking that would be required of me. To, to, you know, proceed as a poet and to, to get as far with it as I, as I wanted, you know, and, and that the art form itself was, was sort of deepening and that I was able to take greater risks in the art and that then the social part of it was something I had the capacity for. And that, like, I mean, so, so I don't know. I've always, you know, yeah, I wanted to be a sizable fish, in a pond, and it—it it, this is the pond that I could handle, mm-hmm. frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was just at the wedding of my roommate from grad school, who, um, who's one of the funniest people I've ever known, and he's now a producer on a major TV show, and married the creator of that TV show, and and I mean, it's a kind of success that has no, just has no bearing on on the life that I've chosen. You know, when I remember when he and I, you know, spent a night looking around 23rd Street for a Domino's that would take credit cards, and this was before everybody took credit cards, or the minimum was like 30 bucks to, you know, so we were looking to get like an $11 pizza on a credit card. I don't know, but but then Brenda and I are always sort of pinching ourselves at each other and going, wow, we we have like a family, we have a house, we, like, we've, we've basically built a life around poetry, and you know, we're we're you know we have family and we can do this Mm -hmm. um but but it's you know i don't know is there is there power i don't know it's it's a kind of influence within a community which then you hope ends up being an influence within an art form which which ends up being an influence of of the art objects that the art form produces but i don't know um one thing that my work has made abundantly clear to me my my work as a critic is that um there are a lot of people who I hope will, uh, be a lot more immortal than I am for their work. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean that, that I'm, it's, it's, I've made it my business to identify them, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's a strange thing, but, um, I don't know. I mean, in your conversation with, with David, uh, for the podcast, you know, this question of immortality or uh, of mortality came up and I, you know, I. I don't know. He's at a different place about mm-hmm. it than than I am. But it seems like a very healthy place to be able to say, "I came and I did what I wanted to do." Mm-hmm. Um, I hope to end up in that place. I feel like this is the mortality segment of the commonplace <laughs> podcast.
0: So that that is really interesting. So two two questions: one f- past-focused and one. F- future focused in a way but i'm so interested to know is there someone maybe it's richard howard maybe it's someone else that you have looked to not so much for for poetic influence you know in your poems or for ways of writing but like i you know what i'd like to be that person um who who would that be for you
1: and we've talked about this a bunch like uh... I mean, I told
0: you once that, you know, there was a moment where I just realized I'm never going to be Jory Graham. And I had to just really think about that. And I think there, I did want to be Jory Graham. And then, you know, I had to really think, why not? Was that okay? What did that mean? Who did I want to be? Did I want to be anyone? I mean, you you answered the question, then I'll tell you. I, yeah. I mean,
1: <laughs> I don't know. It's, I... I... Uh, I I mean, a lot of, I want to be aspects of a whole bunch of people. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I I mean, I don't know. I think, I don't know. It's really, it's hard. Um, There's not one poet that I could jump up and say, you know, I mean, I would love to have Robert Lowell's Abandon and, um, you know, Jory's Abandon. I'd love to have anyone's Abandon. If I could just get (laughs) some Abandon. Uh Uh-huh. I don't know. But it's so
0: interesting that you say you want abandoned because all the things we've just talked about is about the ways in which you're so connected. Um, and you you know the ways in which you've really consciously made yourself very connected. Um, you're not floating around in the world. You know, you, you for a lot of reasons, many of them practical, but some of them probably also temperamental. Like, you have a lot of responsibilities uh that you have to be at a certain place at a certain time and I think some people have a fantasy about being a poet that it means you you know stay up all night writing and then you sleep during the day and you, you... have
1: like wine in your cereal yeah and
0: you... you know that's not your life
1: no and that would be terrifying I mean, I, I mean, I mean, of course, the main reason why I do everything I do is because I, yeah, I would be terrified if I didn't do a lot of things mm-hmm. is basically it. You know, I, I like this concept of, you know, kind of thinking thoughts instead of worse thoughts, you know, mm-hmm. like, or, or or trying to order my life so that I can choose what some of the, the inner, <laughs> the inner, you know, kind of sewage is as opposed to let anyone flush anything in there I think I think fundamentally I think of all of this as private you know I mean even though I do a lot of things that that involve kind of publications and and editors and things it's still just like an email like can I write about this thing and someone's like yes do it by next Thursday and then between now and next Thursday I'm alone with it or I'm alone with a great deal of concentration with a book so I'm alone with this consciousness of somebody and then alone with my own struggle to get a piece written mm-hmm. um which is the same way it is with writing a poem and i think for me i mean the, the abandon that i want is not i mean lowell's among the most connected human beings of his time but he had this he had a capacity to um have a kind of pr- private public you know that that he could write this intensely public-facing poetry that actually had a kind of really um, intimate back-end in a way, you mm-hmm. know? And and he could create that audience in his imagination so that then it would appear that the poems faced it on the page. And, I mean, it you know, of, of, of course Lowell's a terrible idol to have. He was a horrible person and just a horrible representative of a lot of what culture has been trying to fix for a while, except that he was not, I mean, he was... Well, I I don't know. No, that's not true. I'm sort of a horrible person. Um, but but, uh, I don't know. I just, I love the kind of, you know, he spent a decade kind of trapped in a sonnet spin where he just had to write everything in these mad sonnets. And I just want that, just mm-hmm. to be trapped. I don't know, but then I've been looking at Merrill Moore, who was mm-hmm. one of his friends. Have you read Meryl Moore ever? Nobody's read Meryl Moore for good reason. I, um,
0: when you first said that, I thought you—you you were the syntax of your sentence made me think you were saying, "I read James, James Merrill, Merrill more, more than I used to." No, there's someone named Merrill Moore.
1: Merrill Moore huh. was a—he was one of the fugitive poets, and so, you know, friends with that group of poets that that Lowell was sort of mentored by, and he was briefly Frost psychotherapist. He, he was a psychotherapist, mm-hmm. um, and uh, also a, he wrote. Something like literally fifty thousand sonnets. Whoa! He would write five or six a day on a regular day, and when he was really going, he would write more—you know, forty or something like that. But during, was,
0: during his sessions, or was he an analyst? I,
1: I, I mean, I, I think so. <laughs> but yeah, like he would literally just have a notebook, whatever he was doing, just sonnets, uh-huh. and you know they're all rhymed. And and there's this book that was published—the most famous book he's published was called M, which I think stands for Merrill and Moore, and it's a book of a thousand of these sonnets, and they're there 's not a single one that doesn 't have awful parts of mm. it, and, and so there 's not a single one that 's like you know this mm. is a really good poem yeah but, but so i 'm fascinated by that idea too of like just i mean sonnets were a symptom for him, they were a symptom, they were a disease, they were the cure, they were the whole thing you mm. know and and i 'm fast i mean th- there 's an ele- there 's a huge element of that to my relationship to to poetry and to my relationship to everything else that I do. Um, And and I I understand poetry that way. You know, what what David was saying about collecting, you know, I mean, I I have a sense that your work works a lot like that for you too, that just you wouldn't be able to proceed with your life or you wouldn't be able to, in the long run, handle it Mm -hmm. if that wasn't a place that you went. And, And so I don't know, just all the other stuff, the criticism, the advocacy, all of it is just a way of staying near that place that I need to be mm. you know um so that if I need to duck in there I'm not that far you know
0: interesting and so and then to come back to something else you said that you've made it your job to kind of know who's going to be great so who who tell tell me who's
1: um who? I mean that's not terribly hard I mean so <laughs> so Doug D.A. Powell is is my number one pick mm-hmm. for for major poet of our time um, has been for a long time and mm-hmm. and will be so that's one um I don't know but where where are the parameters I don't
0: know I'm I mean I guess you know another thing we should say that you just did is this amazing book um, of Delmore Schwartz's poetry I edited the the book you know and not
1: not just poetry but, but right sorry prose as well
0: prose fiction and so you know I heard you speak about Delmore Schwartz in the process of, of making that book and it's not my sense that you feel like you know Delmore Schwartz is the greatest poet who ever mm-hmm. lived but that the obscurity to which he had fallen was not necessarily commensurate with with his ability and mm-hmm. with his relevancy for us and so you it in that case you you spent a lot of time and energy looking at his work and 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 trying to not necessarily put it forward as like everyone must read this; it will change your life. But this is a really interesting writer, and um, and and still interesting enough to read. And let's make it available. That's not quite the same as as what you're as this other thing that yeah, we're sort of talking yeah. about. I mean, you know, Dave Powell has a great publisher, and yeah, people are reading yeah, it. But yeah. I'm interested in that too. Like, you know, what what is it that you see? You know in Doug's work that gives you that feeling that you you know that right away that you said well this you know is it about feeling like this is going to last is it about feeling like this is the most important you know poetry for the largest number of people to read?
1: I, no certainly not the second thing um, it's, it's more like the first thing but what it is fundamentally is I think Doug's the, the poet of the last 25 years who has heard best the ways in which old and new music are related you mm-hmm. know and and so the new music is very literally music you know uh the the club music that is sort of in the background of the the kind of um the story of the AIDS crisis that is is at the back of his of all of his work and then the old music is is just culture from the, you know, from before the Bible on through the Bible and then, you know, high culture through now. And I think he's just the poet for whom the, the, every, every word is aware of its history and its present, Mm. at least it's present through the nineties. And, um, and then, and so then it's future in a way. And I, and I just think, um, and, and the work is fun to read and funny and just full of, Momentary pleasures that that people are always talking about like Jeffrey Hill or somebody like that it was, you know like it, I but i don't think there's pleasure mm-hmm. in in that work, and there's a lot of pleasure in duckck's work that he chronicles an epidemic in a way that is indelible um is important he's not the only one to do that, and there are more accessible routes you could go to to get that story but there the i mean in poetry but the poetry's not as as high a caliber of poetry Mm -hmm. so that's I mean I think fundamentally like that's what I you know look for is just somebody who has I mean somebody where the the history and the present is always there in the in the language at every moment and there's lots of ways you could do that Mm -hmm. Um, you know reading Rita Dove for this review I just wrote. I had, I had never read her before. Mm. And I was astounded. I mean, she's, a, she's a, a late modernist. I mean, and she's just precise in every moment in there. It's just great. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea because I don't think we've talked about her much in the last 15 years. You know, and so it's so fascinating to find somebody like that. Um, right. That, that just I didn't know. Not that, not that I found Rita Dove. But mm-hmm. anyway... Yeah, I mean, and then, I mean, and then Delmore, yeah, the 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 thing is, I mean, it's not interesting to just be like, who's the best, who's the best? Mm-hmm. Part of the fun of all of this is, I think, who, like, h- how is somebody? You know, like, how, how did they live? How, or how did they, you know, what was in their way? I mean, Delmore for me is so interesting because he was, he wasn't the best. And yet, at his best, he was amazing. Mm-hmm. And at his worst, he was deeply embarrassing and (laughs) there's all this stuff in between and and that I want the story of all that stuff in between like I don't just want the the monuments of of him at his best I I mean I'm interested in the story that's what the book is meant to tell it's like I mean that's what's fun about reading minor writing you -hmm. know I don't know um
0: but is that the story that everyone's book is telling you know at the best we I mean, were amazing at our worst we were embarrassingly bad and what's the story in between or is that particular uh you know to Delmore Schwartz
1: I, no I mean it's certainly the story we're always telling it's just it and if it's a story you're interested in as a reader you can find it in every book mm-hmm. um I mean i and it's a story that I look for I mean I love the the baggy parts of books as much as I love the um perfect ones mm-hmm. uh
0: I mean that's a, I think that's a place where you and I are very very similar, mm-hmm. and really there are a lot of people who would not agree. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I mean I really I'm not so interested in a perfectly honed poetry or or art of any kind, and and I'm you know I love the places where you see the artist struggling, failing, taking a risk, you know trying something new not knowing where they're going and that and that kind of stayed in there i mean the 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 book that immediately comes to mind actually is is the one that i uh have you to thank for which was that i heard you on the radio talking about um tape for the turn of the year Mm -hmm. um, by a.r ammons and it was not a book i'd ever read i hadn't read ammons i love long Mm -hmm. book length poetry um, but i hadn't really read ammons i kind of dismissed him Mm -hmm. i think Mm -hmm. in part honestly because I knew Harold Bloom loved Ammon so much, and so I thought, well, if Harold yeah. Bloom loves him, then maybe I don't. Yeah. Which yeah. is a stupid way of going about picking your reading list. Yeah. Um, and but I, 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 you know, you really have made a, a name for yourself as a critic and as a reviewer. And so when you said, you know, first of all, I know you, but also. I know what you like, and so I thought, "Oh, fine, I'll go read this 200-page poem." And I just, you know, I just freaking love that book. And that book is so full. I mean, in part because on purpose, that's part of the process of that book of you know not editing it and keeping keeping the stuff in, but. You know, that, it's those moments, you're calling them the bagginess, uh, you I know, mean, I just love that.
1: Well, and I, I mean, the bagginess can be a couple of things. I think it can sometimes just be, like, bad, you know, and mm-hmm. sometimes can be, I mean, I think what, maybe what you and I both love in, in poetry are these moments when, at some level, the the person peeks out from behind the sensibility, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, that the sensibility, you know, meaning the kind of convergence of all of the, training and the you know the reading and the i mean that can become a kind of a wall even if it's a vulnerable sensibility i mean that that ultimately distances the person and the writing i think and or or can um and i and i think i love poetry where just the poet either on purpose because they're really skillful at kind of doing that or because they don't know they're doing it Mm -hmm. peeks through and and you and you feel like you can kind of like peek into the room they were writing in a little bit and just kind of get a sense of like what the air smelled like or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, and, and I think, I mean, it's funny because it's like people I talk about anybody who kind of tries to write conversationally about stuff that happens, especially in New York, as having to do with the New York school. But, I, but th- there are so many ways that people have approached that kind of Thing and it's it's it isn't so much. I mean, the, the confessional poets did one version of it, but I think they were also, um, you know, so much about sensibility. And so, I mean, Plath did not really want you in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, Sexton didn't really know where the room was, mm-hmm. um, and and it was always a theater. I mean, Lowell did. Uh, Snodgrass is wonderful and frankly quite boring. Um, and fine, he'll let you in the room, but there's nothing to do there. Um, <laughs> But, uh, you know, I I mean, yeah, Ammons is not a New York school poet. He's not, I mean, he he was an improviser, Mm -hmm. you know, and he was somebody who, like Frost, kind of was homespun for a while and then came into the mainstream and was picked up by a bunch of famous people who said, great, you're one of us. And, Mm -hmm. and, And he was a very major writer, and there are poems in the collected poems that are really worth reading and a lot of poems in there that are really, like, cranky. He may be the most you know, the kind of most famous cranky writer Mm -hmm. of all who I mean for whom I mean when Larkin's cranky it's really worth reading. When when Emmons is cranky it's not worth reading. (laughs) And you do have to kind of like sort through just like where he's annoying. Mm -hmm. Um but tape for the turn of the year, yeah. I mean you're 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 sitting there with him as a typewriter. I mean just the form puts you there. Right. And you're sitting there waiting with him to pass time for the length of a of a tape, of a of a calculator tape. And it's it's it feels realistic, you right, know? Right, And it's fascinating.
0: I mean, if if we're going to sort of generalize, maybe to the point of meaninglessness, what the New York School is, um, and instead of saying, like, okay, it's a historical time period and with a geographical, you know, location, but it has something else more broadly to do with that feeling of realism and that feeling of peeking, you know, through the page, yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, you you and I are both very... Much a part of that, I I might, and this might offend you, I might say that I'm too anxious to really be a good New York School poet, and you're too sad.
1: Yeah, I, I don't, I don't yeah. think either of us are New York School but poets, I, and I don't. But,
0: but don't you think that's that is that's closest?
1: I, I mean, I think. An, no? Well, I, I mean, I mean, I mean, probably yes. It's it's if you were to try to find a bunch of cousins, that's where you'd find a lot of them. But that's not where I want people to find them because mm. it's not where I identify. I mean, I just don't think... I, I mean, frankly, I think...
0: You identify more with Lowell. I identify with,
1: more with Lowell and with with poets who write in ways that are, I simply can't.
0: Hmm. I mean, who
1: are just much better verbal technicians than I am. And right, then I so, will ever be... So what does
0: it mean to identify with someone who writes in a way that you can't?
1: It's you, to aspire to ah, to be them and to, to enjoy the act of fooling yourself into... Or or just, you know, I mean, it's it's like you know this week i'm obsessed with a 60s organist and i'm identifying with him and it's to, i i aspire in my mind to play organ you know and i'm i don't <laughs> um, <laughs> you know and and you know to play organ in the 60s you know more than just to play organ mm-hmm. um i don't Okay know. let's
0: talk about your book for a second we're in this i think interesting space where we know each other well we've i've read all your books um which i can't say about that many poets but i've read all of them and i've most.
1: read a couple of your poems yeah once. and <laughs> i didn't like them but, um, no, just kidding no, and
0: uh and so you you know we we've, we've, we've had many conversations about poetry before i've showed you my manuscripts before you've been incredibly helpful to me And likewise yes thank you and so you asked me to look at your new manuscript and and blurb it and I first was not very gracious about it. And I said, I hate writing blurbs. I'm not good at them. I'm, I, and, it, and it is true. I really I really suffer to write them. And you wrote back, which I thought at first you were kidding. And then I realized you weren't. And you said, oh, don't do it if it's you know going to be difficult for you. I like doing it. And it just never occurred mm-hmm. to me that a person could like doing this. <laughs> so I thought you were teasing me. And I was like, oh, wow. I, you know, he's... He's really disappointed, and I, you know I'm not being a good friend, and mm-hmm. and and also you know you had just said this thing in that same talk that you gave about Delmar Schwartz about that one of the reasons that he had sort of fallen into obscurity was that he didn't have enough friends, mm-hmm. you know, and he didn't have like you know people who cared enough about his work, you know, and so it it wasn't like if I was going to write you a blurb or not, it was going to make a huge difference. I don't think anyone's you know going to buy your book or not buy your book because. I blurbed you, you're going you're, you're gonna to get smarter, better people to blurb your book than me. But, but then I sort of uh, said, okay, wait, send it to me. <laughs> um, and the thing I do love about um, being asked um, to write blurbs is that I get to see the manuscripts before they're published. So I think we're in this kind of like interesting little space mm-hmm. that no one really talks about, about where, you know, I've gotten to see mm-hmm. this new manuscript, um, you're, it, it's, it's, already, it's, you know, it's already slated for publication. So it's not, it's not the place we've been before right. of like, what do you think about this? So in this book, you've got a few poems that are called Why Poetry, A Partial Autobiography, which I love, which in, in some ways is what we're talking about mm-hmm. right now. Would you be interested in reading one of these? Sure. Yeah. Do you have a... I have, like, little tiny questions that I wanted to ask about, I think, all of these, which is why these were the ones I printed out. But you don't have to go with what I was going to do.
1: Um. I mean, I guess if I were to pick, I would pick either this one, that one, or that one to read.
0: Why don't you... I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not thinking clearly. Why don't you read this one since it's the first one in the book?
1: And it's also the newest. Oh, good. Which is why I like it. Okay, like, It good. was written pretty recently. Um, so it's called I Hate Trump with <laughs> All My Being. Um, no, it's not, but I do called every turning
0: wait why did i hate trump come up here
1: because i just wanted to say it somewhere in here (laughs) and i just because it's like after lunch hour at work and i spend every lunch hour like checking on the trump coverage just Mm. to just to make sure my blood doesn't go cold or something i don't know or maybe to make it go i don't know i so i just have him in my head always it's called every turning every turning toward is a turning away poets have always known the truth of this I read my book because time in my home is senseless and unbearable. I shower so as not to have have to face the inevitable crackling of my focus when I read, and I binge-watch the blacklist to forestall the interminable chore post-shower of drying my desperate and overgrown hair, having also forestalled my annual haircut, which I refuse to attend to daily because I am handsome if I avoid the mirror. But, of course, none of this is what I am truly avoiding. Death is shorthand for death. For life's uncountable endings and its ultra-vivid catalog of things undone, hopes unfulfilled, opportunities unnoticed, so untaken. I could cite lips not kissed or kissed once and never again. High school nights spent grieving high school nights. They stick in the heart like sharp bones, clog the way like cholesterol instruments never learned my dream of playing piano is already impossible as is my wise plan never to fall prey to credit card debt but obviously i mean something deeper an avoidance more futile and tragic so primary and unnameable i shall be forced to talk around it say everything but all my droning hasty ears not death but what it surrounds this one life that is all that I am, prize I fail to value because I mistake it for a consolation against the sting of some other, greater loss. Bird song, sunset, music unfolding in and out of time, the taste of chocolate blossoming so generously across my tongue, my daughter laughing, my sighing sun, warming winter air, waking unworried from a weird good dream, Thousands of orgasms, tongue and thigh and arch, a clean room, alphabetized books on shelf after happy shelf, drunkenness, sleep, crying out and crying over my pain, my wondrous pain.
0: Nice. So, from your new book, I have several new thoughts about poetry or questions um i mean your phrase wondrous pain i i would love to know what you feel the place of pain is in poetry or what is i know it's really it's that's a big one but you know
1: it's um synthesized Mm -hmm. you know it's uh I don't know. It's. I mean, this is going to be. Poetry is always a pleasure object. You know, it's an entertainment at some level. It's. It 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 synthesizes life. Even and or especially when it appears to, to uh, report from it, and I think. It um it it is the it is the. It is the, play place, uh, where you, where pain is the ball or something. You know. Hmm. Um, it's it's the place where you can go to fetishize pain as app- or it's one of the places, as opposed to fetishizing, you know, whatever you're supposed to fetishize at like, um, spring break in Miami Beach, or or TV where you're supposed to fetishize this kind of you know uh, excitement or drama or I mean it's it's yeah I don't know I mean I th- I mean real pain is 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 beyond bearing I mean you know even if you're bearing it it's not something that you write about, you know. I mean, and of course there are many, 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 many poems that have real pain in them, you know. Um, oh gosh, you know, the, um, it's the famous salon poem, you know, black milk of daybreak, we drink you. Um, you know, I mean, that poem has got a lot of real pain in it. Um.
0: So, so poetry is the place you go to fetishize pain not to alleviate pain. Well, well I, mean,
1: I mean, if you're if you're engaged in an act of fetish, fetishization, or if you're playing with something, you're in less pain, right? Um, I mean, I mean, I don't know. I, I I think it's and and if you can actually play with the thing, or mm-hmm. with with a, a version of the thing, or a drawing of the thing, or a sculpture of the thing that's causing you um, unbearable mm-hmm. discomfort, then I think you're you're alleviated a little bit. But 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 I think real pain happens in a... I mean, mean—and well, it happens in a deeper and much more inaccessible place, though I think sometimes poetry can help us to um, get closer to that inaccessible place. But I don't... I mean, I don't fundamentally think we can interact with our real inner lives um, much, hmm. you know, or, or I don't know that we can affect them much. Um,
0: so, okay, so in one of the poems, in one of the partial autobiography you you wrote, have these lines I was a good candidate for poetry into which anyone's latent monstrousness can seep like moisture into good wood for decades a lifetime my monstrousness is rotting harmlessly now in my poetry so bo- monstrousness and pain are not the same um, but you I mean does poetry pr- somehow absorb monstrousness are you if you you know i mean i can't help but but see you know lowell in your work both um you know in the language but also in in what i know is your attachment to him and your interest in him i mean i think monstrousness is a word that you know reminds me of lowell in a certain Mm -hmm. way and i might be completely wrong but my fantasy is that my poems are more monstrous than I am outside of my poems. That the poems are the place where I really yeah. become monstrous. I hope,
1: yeah. Um,
0: but not so. But I don't know about the second part of that, about whether my monstrous rots harmlessly in my poetry. And I'm curious about that for you. The pain is wondrous. The monstrousness is sort of hopefully. Contained.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I guess in that line, it occurs to me that I'm actually fetishizing two things. One of which is is to be monstrous, you know, meaning to to commit bad or hurtful acts, and the other is to be harmless, mm. right, or ineffective, mm-hmm. um, and to be unable to commit um, monstrous or even useful acts, you know, and and that's a kind of playing with pain too. I mean, to sort of fantasize about being being ineffective so I think again it's I mean it's I don't know I mean it's it's ended up for me that poetry has been a place where I have worked out worked through worked on a you know a lifetime of feeling um, sad ineffective um, you know monstrous whatever I mean and which is not in itself very interesting Mm. it's not uh, it doesn't feel very important in a grand scheme except that it's what I always look for in poetry
0: I think it's pretty interesting that, again, I'm thinking of the Lowell line I'm I'm frizzled, stale, and small that's a, I mean you know Lowell is not my guy but that line really hits me, you know, for what it would mean for someone like Lowell to to say that
1: I mean, you know, it's so much the music too, I mean, gosh Mm -hmm. frizzled, you know um, is, is not his word, except that it is, so I don't know, I mean uh you know, I mean, again, it, you and I could do a whole separate podcast about marriage, yeah, and its relationship to um, everything. But you know, I think uh, the the fact is, the the longer I've been married and a, and a and a father, the more I've learned that most real monstrousness happens in very small ways, and that it's, uh, you know, it's not what I'm dramatizing in the poems. It's much more local cruelty that. Um, that you wouldn't notice his cruelty until a little later. Mm. Um, and, you know, I don't know. I mean, something that I think happens in this book is that I try to get my head around some of that more local stuff. The the poem about standing over Cal while I'm feeding him through his G-tube and sensing, you know, that I'm sort of proud of myself for being a person who would do that mm. um, is my trying to get at maybe some of some of that more local stuff. You know, but and and trying to write about like what fights are actually like with Brenda or or some of it you know mm-hmm. I, I don't know, but it's
0: and do you do that for for yourself? do you do that for Brenda? do you do that to? This sounds grandiose, but I really mean it sincerely to shine a light on what real life, including real marriage, is because it's a—it's not a, a story that's really been told very much. So uh, it's, for it's other people, c- certainly
1: not for anything as altruistic as that. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think because it seems po- powerful, it seems hot, it seems—I mm-hmm. mean—and it's—it's so much of what I go to your work for, frankly, and to, I mean just that—that that, um, I'm. I'm nervous for what the people involved are going to think and I want to be nervous you know I want to get in a new position where I feel like there's something at stake mm-hmm. um, and so I want to make myself feel like there's something at stake in my work that would make me and other people nervous
0: mm-hmm. and, and in this case the thing at stake might be Brenda's reactions to the yeah problems. yeah and I mean
1: and, and that's a that's a sort of it's something that happened a while ago. It happened when I was writing my first book and it's something that she sort of agreed to. You know, she's like, "Okay, I'll 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 let you have this character." And you know, nobody really has ever said anything. Well, I don't know. Nobody's really ever said anything about it, but they they could, they they could wonder.
0: Mm. Wonder what Brenda I, thinks about the whole Yeah, films wonder wonder whatever.
1: what Brenda thinks, wonder what our marriage is really like, mm-hmm. wonder I mean, and I would imagine you, you wouldn't wonder...
0: You don't think I've asked you that? I well, you like have. I, yeah. yeah, you have. I mean, but,
1: I mean, yeah, you have. But, 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 but as a friend, you know... Uh-huh. I mean, somebody could write a review that would make me uncomfortable. Um, uh-huh. But I'm inviting it, of course, you know? Um,
0: I mean, you said to me one time, and this ended up in one of my lectures, actually, that, that you said um, part of the pleasure of my poetry to you was for you wondering what Josh thinks. Yeah, 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 yeah totally. Um, you know, and I don't know if it's exactly the same for me. I, I mean, I I don't know which is my favorite of your books, but certainly Brenda's in the room was like my first, you know, oh, this is awesome. And I am trying to think if, if part of the pleasure of that book for me is wondering what Brenda thinks. I don't think so. I think for me... I mean it's funny because it's so much the title the feeling that i have that brenda's in the room Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in those poems Mm -hmm. and and that you are and that i'm in the room with you so it's not exactly like is brenda okay with this i don't feel as i'm reading each poem that i'm like judging or even in the new book or in the second to last book like ah craig is a good husband craig is a bad husband Mm -hmm. craig is a good father craig is a Mm -hmm. bad father you know uh Like, you know, where's Brenda right now while this is happening? Um, It's not so much that, but it is, there is a definite voyeuristic pleasure of like, I am watching your marriage. And I know it's not real in one way, but I assume it is in another way.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, and and when I say I want to know what Josh thinks, I don't actually want to know what Josh thinks. I, I want to feel his presence in the poems. I want to feel that you have shown him the book, mm-hmm. meaning that i that, that my having gotten your book means that he's blessed it. and mm-hmm. so and so then I sense him. I sense him as a conscience and a consciousness mm. in and around the book, which I think is something like what you're talking i mean it's it's a, it's getting people together mm-hmm. um, but but I think we both know that it's not real, but we also feel i mean it's I, it's just it's fundamentally exciting to kind of simulate or imagine something that we tried to... like. How do you imagine something so that it is as accurate... So that it appears to be imagined accurately or appears to be... But is, but is that even it? I don't know. Um,
0: I mean, so maybe one way of thinking about this just briefly is, you know, because I, I interviewed or I had a conversation with Matt Rohr, and he certainly writes about his domestic life, and he writes about his marriage, and he... I mean, I would say... You know, his primary mode, to my mind, is love poems. Poems of love, poems of gratitude. In that way, I would say temperamentally, he's quite different than the two of us. I love going to read his poems because it puts me in this world in which things are good. (laughs) That's not, frankly, so much what I feel in your poems, nor in mine. And so there's something else. There's a feeling that I am... Present for the working out of something that is very complicated and very monstrous and very painful Um, and, and You know, I mean you you have these lines in your book in nest You love your children as much as anything you were unprepared for Fiercely with fear with all the fucking hatred it takes Yeah That's that's my experience. Yeah, Um, yeah. you know, or I have my experience that resonates, you know, with with me, and it feels you you really you're not supposed to say that, and I think there are other moments, you know, where I just again it's not about thinking did Brenda like that or not like that, but it is like I I think it is about feeling like wow the two of them have given each other permission to go to these. Like dark places, and talk about their marriage and their parenthood, and you know their their families of origin, um, their bodies, that, you know, in ways that are revealing and not, you know, I mean, you know, the line you just read, in, in every turning, you know, I'm handsome if I don't look in the mirror. So much of this, of the poems. Are looking in the mirror, and I don't mean that in a
1: negative way at all. I Meaning, in so They're many not... of these poems, you're
0: not <laughs> Well, that's what, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, no,
1: yeah. I mean, I mean, but but of course, the mirror is drawn, you know, in the poems. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not the mirror. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't. I, but but it's but it's um, and it's like part of the thing is it's like the the real revelation is not like saying these taboo things. Marriage is hard. Parenthood is often unpleasant. You know, I mean I mean, you're not supposed to say those things, but we know them. We all know them. and it's become culturally a lot more acceptable to say those things. It's like I think underlying it is just this question of like to, like why say it now and to whom? like who like or what's so now you've said it and then what? I don't know. I think when I get it right, I hope when I get it right or when I read somebody who's gotten it right, it's like, I don't know, they've gotten as close to the edge of something as they can get what do I mean? Saying something like that about your kids gives you this momentary fantasy that you could just walk away mm. and, like, make another choice. And and just essentially, like, complaining or, or articulating your pain is a way of fantasizing about not feeling it, you know? Mm. Or about having just made completely different choices for everything. And I think that's part of what it is, too, that I'm fascinated with. Like, poetry is a place where you can... Where the, the, the sort of piping underneath the poems is about imagining ha- having made all your choices differently, mm-hmm. um, and and there's something tragic in just w- wanting to kind of have that be the plumbing of your of your house, you know, mm-hmm. or or of, of of just having the kind of mind that's always somewhere between hope and regret, but never there, you mm-hmm. know, or or, or 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 trying to articulate that kind of mind. And it's, I mean, it's like, I don't know, tonight I'm going to go home and I'm going to play with my kids and I'm going to enjoy it, you know, and it's not going to be tragic or meaningful or important and it's not going to be worth writing about, you Mm -hmm. know, and you know, that, so that all of this doesn't speak for what I'm going to do tonight when I get home. Mm -hmm. Everything we've been talking about is also just the way that I've come up with. And I think that each of us has come up with to get to feel at home in ourselves, you know, I mean, I can just get the rest of the world to go away Mm -hmm. for a little while. And Mm -hmm. I think that very simple, fundamental. I mean, when I was a kid, I used to love, I was an only child, I used to love to go and hide in the middle of clothing racks, Mm -hmm. Mm around clothing racks in stores. And I think it feels like that. It's just the only way I could go somewhere where nobody's looking for me. Mm -hmm. You know, if you pull your feet up, no one will know you're in the middle of a clothing rack. Mm -hmm. And I think just... Part of the reason why I so vigorously pursue poetic activities is I kind of want to be in a clothing rack a lot more of the time Hmm. um, than I can be.
0: So, So much of your life is about making what you just said is like the most personal thing, poetry, the most private sort of personal thing, public. Right? I mean, it's at the root of the word publication, and you're you're involved really in the world of publication in every level, and yet you're saying part of what you love about poetry is that you're looking for privacy in a very public place, right?
1: Yeah, right, like the clothing rack, yeah. which you're in a store. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, and, and that I want to be able to just get in there anytime. Yeah. And so if I'm if I'm near poetry, I can pretty much go and have a smoke and be there alone.
0: Because you're not saying I want to go off into the woods. No. You're not. You're not saying I want to, you know, uh, build a bunker underneath the earth and go there. You want to be in a clothing rack, in a in a in a store.
1: Not far from my mom or whoever I'm shopping with. Yeah. Um, yeah. Totally. And and I I I don't want to be there for that long either. Mm-hmm. But. I want to be there for like 20 minutes
0: and it's the writing of the poems that sort of puts you there mm-hmm. and the reading too, or just the writing, yeah, the writing, the reading the, reading, yeah. reading,
1: the writing about.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. So before I know you, you have a real job, so you have yeah. to go to it. Yeah. Um, tell me though, before you go, what are you reading lately that you're just really loving or it doesn't have to be a book too. It could be just, what are you, I am really well, i
1: don't know. Can one say that one is loving this? I'm reading Primo Levi. Mm-hmm. Um, Every, every which one? I'm, All of it? No, I'm reading the, the first one, the, um, If I Were a Man. Uh-huh. Uh, My know.
0: son is reading Primo Levi right now.
1: Um, yeah. It's, is he reading that one or is he reading Periodic Table?
0: I think, no, I think he's he's reading the only one we happen to have at home, which I think is Survival in Auschwitz. Which, yeah, I mean, that's the yeah. one I'm reading. Yeah. Oh, it's the same book?
1: Yeah, like, the original book. title was it. Yeah, that's,
0: that's wild. Like literally at this moment, I am sure that's what he's doing. Okay, um, is it all right? Should, is it okay? He's going to be oh, all right?
1: Yeah, well, which son?
0: Moses, the oldest, yeah. Yeah, he'll be fine. I mean,
1: yeah. it's full of bad news, but um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's really the, it's a really level account of what went on there and of the degradation, but right. uh, 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 of how basically the, the prisoners of Auschwitz were were, and Levy was at sort of one of the sub camps near Auschwitz. And it, it's just a, he just describes how they lived and you know, how basically they, they all just became uh, dehumanized, but then they had this whole society within it. Mm. Um, and, um, it's, it's heartbreaking because it's not particularly dramatic. Um, it just proceeds. So, so I'm reading that because I had taught this, this John Acachella essay about a biography. Of Primo Levi for years. So it's an essay that I love, in which she says, because um, she's talking about. So it's it's a it's a New Yorker piece um, called "A Hard Case," and she's reviewing a biography by someone named Angier. The last name is Angier of Primo Levi, and basically, Angier basically says Primo Levi was depressed before the camps. He was depressed after the camps. That's why he killed himself. Mm. Um, and you know, there's the word. There's still some question over whether he killed himself or whether he fell down the stairs, and Acocella says in this marvelous moment at the end, um, you know, uh, whether or not he killed himself, quote, it is a species of sentimentality to believe that the end of something tells the truth about it, hmm. um, which I just think is one of the best little insights, especially for a book critic to manage to get into a book review. It's a true literary insight. So anyway, and then I realized I, I, I teach this almost every semester. And I realized I've never read Levy. And so mm. I treated myself to the three-volume um, collected works, and I've been reading it. Mm. So there's that, and there is... I don't know. I mean, Paisley Rechdahl's book that's coming out in the fall, and Dana Levin's book that's coming out in the fall, both from Copper Canyon. And there is... Um, I've been reading Russell Edson a little bit again yeah. for the first time in a while um, I went through a whole phase where I read a ton, both novels and a bunch of stories of Leonard O'Connor who is very much a poet, or who's very much just, cons- like the, the the work performs this kind of self-evisceration and self you know, just this sort of I don't know, dissection of the self and then leaving the bits all over um, that it's very, but it's it's the self as represented by the place it, the self was made, hmm. um, so that, yeah, and then just things in manuscript and, yeah, that's
0: awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you, Craig.
1: Thanks, This
0: was fantastic. Yeah. Um, I feel like I think I, you I feel taught like me something could...
1: about myself with the clothing rack thing. You made me realize what that's all about. What <laughs> I want to be.
0: This has been episode eight of Commonplace, conversations with poets and other people. Upcoming episodes will feature Elena Kalatiak-Davis, Wayne Kostenbaum, Jericho Brown, Terrence Hayes, and Alicia Ostriker. Theme music is written and performed by Moses Zucker Gorin, design work by Aton Darwish. Commonplace producers are Nicholas Fuenzalita and Christine LaRusso. And we're thrilled to have a new member of our team, Zach Tackett. Thank you to Daniel Schiffman and a shout out to my dad and stepmom who listened to every episode and call with encouraging and charming feedback.
1: This is a Merrill Moore poem called Cripes, and it's sort of terrible. Jesus, is it necessary to die? Cannot some arrangement be made to lie undead in the open under the sky? Cannot I live a little longer than is allotted to the Son of Man? Answer me, do something, one who can. Fate, cannot I bargain? Time, cannot I beg a little leeway from the sky? I want to live. I do not want to die. I have seen men die. I know what it is. There is no light. We do not know what it is. There is no word, no warmth, no touch, no kiss. There is nothing. There is only this. Jesus, don't let me die. I don't want to die. This is To Speak of Woe That is in Marriage by Robert Lowell. And it opens with an epigraph. From Schopenhauer, that reads, It is the future generation that presses into being by means of these exuberant feelings and supersensible soap bubbles of ours. And here's the poem, uh, all of which is in quotes The hot night makes us keep our bedroom windows open, our magnolia blossoms, life begins to happen. My hopped up husband drops his home disputes and hits the street to cruise for prostitutes, freelancing out along the razor's edge. This screwball might kill his wife and take the pledge. Oh, the monotonous meanness of his lust. It's the injustice. He is so unjust. Whiskey blind, swaggering home at five. My only thought is how to keep alive. What makes him tick? Each night now I tie ten dollars in his car key to my thigh. Gored by the climacteric of his want, he stalls above me like an elephant.
0: That was Craig Morgan Teicher reading To Speak of the Woe That is Marriage, from Collected Poems by Robert Lowell, copyright 2003 by Harriet Lowell and Sheridan Lowell, used by permission of Farrar Strauss and Giroux, LLC. And here are two short excerpts from A.R. Ammons's long poem, Tape for the Turn of the Year. Ammons begins his long, book-length poem on December 6th after buying and inserting a two-and-a-quarter-inch-wide roll of adding machine tape into his typewriter. He writes until the tape runs out on January 10th, 1964. This first excerpt is from December 11th. You. Who are you? How do I feel about you? Do I hate it that I love to be tied to you by love? Untied, would I be free or lost? But for your own sake, who are you? Can I help? Is there anything I can do? Are things working out all right for you? What are those black areas? Are they parts of you that can't fall into place? come into light? Are they longings and fears only dreams whisper? I love you the best I know how. Encounter me with belief. And this second excerpt is toward the end of the book on December 31st. After this long poem, I hope I can do short, rich, hard lyrics, lines that can incubate slowly, then fall into symmetrical tangles, lines that can be gone over and over till they sing with pre-established rightness. Here, I plug on, whatever the muse gives, I release, for this is one possible kind of song and has one kind of veracity. I've been looking for a level of language that could take in all kinds of matter and move easily with light or heavy burden. A level that could, without fracturing, rise and fall with conception and intensity, not be completely outfaced by the prosaic and not be inadequate to the surges. I've hated at times the self-conscious poem I've wanted to bend more, borrowing with flexible path into the common life and commonplace. Those were two excerpts from Tape for the Turn of the Year by A.R. Ammons, copyright 1965 by A.R. Ammons, used with permission of the publisher W.W. W. Norton & Company, Incorporated. all rights reserved.